You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. In a unanimous decision, the Supreme Court let the Federal Communications Commission relax the limits on the ownership of local television and radio stations, siding with the broadcast industry and Trump-era regulators in a long-running fight. Joining me is Matt Schettenhelm, litigation and government analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Matt, explain the change in rules here. So this is a long-running effort by the FCC to look at easing its rules on media ownership for broadcast stations. And for a number of years, uh, the FCC's looked at relaxing the rule on how many stations, how many TV stations a company can own in a particular market, and also what, what's known as its cross-ownership rules, whether the same company can own newspapers, and broadcast stations in the same market, or whether it can own both a TV and a radio station in the same market. And what's happened here is for the past 17 years, every time the FCC's tried to ease these rules, which in some cases date from the 1970s, the same court, these same three judges at the Third Circuit Court of Appeals in Philadelphia have blocked the effort and hit pause on those pre-existing rules. And what happened here was the first time the FCC was sort of to, able to break through that stranglehold that the Third Circuit had on its effort to ease the rules. Why did the FCC want to ease the rules on ownership? So broadcasters say, look, when these rules were enacted in the 1970s, the world looked very different. We didn't have the Internet as a competitor. Uh, we didn't have cable television playing the, the role that it does today. And so the whole, the whole media landscape is entirely different than when uh, the FCC put these rules into place. And so they've, the broadcasters have been consistently pushing the FCC to say, look, these rules just don't make sense in this world anymore with all the different uh, ways for advertisers to, to, to reach consumers. Broadcasters don't have a corner on that market anymore. So putting special limitations on what broadcasters can do that don't apply to internet companies, that don't apply to to the cable companies, don't apply to all these other forms of of new competition, it just doesn't make sense anymore. 
And that argument uh, with, with certain uh, members of the FCC has taken hold. And so what we saw with the Trump FCC was, was an effort to ease those broadcast ownership rules to make it what, you know, a, a little more balanced between broadcasters and other forms of media. Tell us about the Third Circuit decision that was appealed before the Supreme Court. Right. So, so this, I think, is the fourth time that the Third Circuit has taken up an FCC effort to ease these ownership rules. And it's the fourth time before these same three judges the FCC has lost. And it's always been two of the three judges that rule against the FCC and one that would say, no, what the FCC did here is fine. And so in this latest version, it was the FCC trying to ease. It totally did away with the restrictions on the cross ownership, on owning newspapers and TV stations and radio stations in the same market. And it slightly eased up the rule on how many TV stations you can own in any individual market. What the court said, these two judges, they they, they said, no, FCC, you didn't do enough to look at whether if you do away with these rules, whether it will hurt ownership of stations by minorities and by females. And you've said, the FCC, that it's, that's an important consideration as part of your public interest analysis. And yet here, you don't have any data, any hard conclusions about if you do away with these rules, whether that's going to decrease ownership by females and by minorities. And so these two judges said, nope, you can't relax these rules until you know more about the effects on that sort of ownership of stations. So now what did the Supreme Court decide? So, so then the broadcasters and the FCC took it to, to the Supreme Court and said, the standard that those two judges at the Third Circuit put on us is too onerous. It's too tough. And agencies get to make these sorts of policy calls. And they get to balance the evidence that they have before it. And that's effectively what the Supreme Court, with a decision written by Brett Kavanaugh, said, that this is a decision within the zone of reasonableness for the FCC. And the FCC took the data it had. It asked for comments from the whole world and said, tell us what the effects of doing away with this rule will be. It took the evidence it received, it analyzed it, and it concluded that in the FCC's view, it won't clearly have an impact on ownership by females and minorities. And even though those two judges at the Third Circuit would have disagreed or would have pushed the FCC to do more analysis, the Supreme Court in this decision said, no, what the FCC did is enough. It doesn't have a duty to go find the data itself. It took the data it was provided, it analyzed it, and it made a policy decision. And that's all that's needed. It acted within the zone of reasonableness. So the FCC's efforts to ease these rules can take effect, despite what those two judges at the Third Circuit said. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Was it surprising that it was a unanimous decision? That was the, the one thing that did surprise me about this decision. When the Supreme Court took this case, it was a pretty strong signal that at least four justices 
had issues with what the Third Circuit could, well, you know, had done before. And so there was, there was always some, some question, okay, are we going to get to the fifth, the sixth, the seventh judge? Uh, but this is a pretty business-friendly Supreme Court, given its makeup right now. And so it was a, it was a very good sign for the broadcasters that, that the court took the case. I did think that you, you might see a dissent from, from Justice Sotomayor uh, backing uh, the public interest group uh, case that, that the FCC needs to do more with looking to ownership by, by females and minorities. I suspect that was a disappointment to, to that cause, that there wasn't a, a stronger voice um, on, on the side of the Third Circuit here. And so that, that was the other surprise that how quickly this decision came out. This, this decision was argued in, in mid-January, and to have a decision here already in early April is fast for the FCC. But that's also a, a product of this being unanimous. When the court acts unanimously, we don't have to wait for dissenting opinions to come in as well. So, yeah, it, it, I, I was surprised that, that the court spoke with one voice on this. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote a concurrence that took things a step further. Tell us what he said in his concurrence. That's right. So, so Clarence Thomas uh, sort of took the view that the the industry groups, the broadcasters, were pushing here that that the FCC really, when it's considering whether to ease the rules, it doesn't have to consider ownership by by females and minorities at all. The standard in the statute doesn't say anything about that. It says the FCC is supposed to do a public interest analysis. Now, historically, the FCC has always said a public interest analysis looks to questions like ownership by minority groups. But but Clarence Thomas would have gone a little bit further than the rest of the court and, and, and said, look, the FCC, you, you don't have to look at this at all if you don't want to. And there's no no duty under the statute. So. In some cases for the public interest group, it's a win in the sense that the, the Supreme Court didn't go further and, and tie the FCC's hands the way Clarence Thomas uh, suggests that, that the court could have. But Thomas was writing only for himself. The Supreme Court's decision for the unanimous court um, was, was a more modest decision that just said, you know, the FCC did enough here in balancing the factors, and it's free. it didn't opine on whether the FCC should or should not or can or cannot consider um, ownership um, by minority groups as part of its analysis. Did the majority decision basically say the FCC doesn't need data to make these kinds of decisions, and does that imply that other agencies don't need data either to make rules. I think what he was clarifying is that the test itself is not that onerous, that an agency like the FCC doesn't have a duty to go out and find the data. And so that's going to help every agency as lower courts apply this standard for what constitutes arbitrary and capricious action that an agency doesn't have a duty to go out there and find the data itself. It takes the data that it's provided, and sometimes it doesn't get very good data. But the agency simply has a duty to analyze the data it receives and make a judgment within a reasonable zone of interest. So it's, it's helpful to agencies as they make policy calls, and it's going to be more difficult for judges who disagree with agencies to second-guess those decisions and to block those decisions. So in that sense, absolutely, 
this decision would help not just the FCC, but any agency challenged under the Administrative Procedures Act. Does that rule go into effect immediately then? Yeah, so the effect of the Supreme Court's decision is to vacate the Third Circuit's decision, which was blocking the FCC's rule relaxation from taking effect. So by that chain of, of, of operations, yes, I, the FCC's relaxation of its ownership rules now takes effect as, as a result of the court's decision. The question that sort of hung over this litigation was whether this kind of a rule relaxation would lead to a wave of consolidation in the broadcast industry. Right. So I think the impacts here are not going to be dramatic in the short term. And one reason why is because we now have the FCC controlled not by Republicans, but likely by Democrats. Now, right now, the FCC split two to two. Until Joe Biden uh, appoints a fifth commissioner, the FCC can't even do any of its controversial work like media ownership. And that's going to take a matter of months. But even when the fifth FCC commissioner is approved, a Democrat-controlled FCC is going to, to act much more slowly and much more cautiously in easing these rules. And it's been the Democrats at the FCC that have been much more sympathetic to these public interest groups' arguments that we have to be uh, worried about ownership by females and minorities. And so this FCC is going to, I think there's some sympathy even from the Democrats to, to say, look, these, these rules from the 1970s are a little too restrictive for broadcasters, both on the radio and the TV side. And I think so there's, there likely will be some loosening of the rules over the next four years but it's going to be modest and it's going to be slow moving. What it will help with, I think, is, is when you see these big transactions by the broadcasters of swapping stations and, and things like that, every time those are announced, the broadcasters have to, have to divest a number of stations because they have too many in any in individual market. This should help them in some cases not need to divest quite as many stations. And so they gain economies of scale and efficiencies from owning multiple stations in local markets. It's going to be slow moving, but it should help broadcasters. And then in the long term, if, if, if you see the FCC controlled by Republicans again, you could see much more aggressive action in really scrapping these rules and really uh, taking a lighter touch to broadcast regulation over the long term. This decision gets the Third Circuit not entirely out of the way, but it really helps avoid what had been a roadblock for those efforts to relax the rules. So then will we see some consolidation ahead, some acquisitions? I think it's very possible. I mean, I think there are certain broadcast uh, TV owners that are, are always looking for those opportunities. And I think this should, this should make it a little easier for companies like Gray Television, who, who filed the brief with the Supreme Court and Nexstar and Sinclair and Tegna, uh, names like that are constantly looking for opportunities like this. And this should make it a little bit easier uh, to, to own more stations in local markets. But as I said, it's going to be gradual. It's going to be slow moving because this FCC, with, with Jessica Rosenworcel now as the acting chairwoman, this FCC is not going to be aggressive in easing the rules. Uh, but this makes it a little bit easier going forward. 
will this benefit conservative broadcasters in particular? I don't think it has an impact like that based on the ideology of of the message that's going out there. This has mostly been distinct from from those sorts of issues. This just helps as a business matter, uh, potentially ownership of uh, you know owning more stations in local markets. Um, and so I don't I don't see a direct impact on, on ideology like that. I take it that there is a problem with having enough female and minority ownership of television stations. Is there any way to consider that in the future with this decision? Yeah, so that's, in one sense, that's the, the win for the public interest groups who lost this case, no question. But they didn't shut the door on the FCC's ability to continue considering that as a factor. And all the Supreme Court said here is was all the evidence that was before that FCC, it didn't force the FCC to do more. They could make a decision to ease the rules based on that record. That said, there's nothing that stops the FCC now, especially under the control of Democrats, to say, hey, this really matters to us. Ownership by females and minorities is important, and we need to do more. But what, what really needs to happen likely is that they need more evidence than they had here on the record of the impacts of these of the effects of easing the rules on ownership by by these groups. And um, so so absolutely, I think you, you're going to see Democrats um, continue to push uh, broadcasters to do more in that respect. And this Supreme Court decision doesn't block that. Absolutely. It just makes it easier if the FCC has decided, look, that we don't see a problem with easing the rules. And and so it makes it a little easier to ease the rules going forward. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Matt. That's Matthew Schettenhelm, Bloomberg Intelligence Litigation and Government Analyst. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing to our Bloomberg podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every week at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.